Heroes are all well and good, but sometimes you just want to root for the villain. After all, they know how to have fun. And with seven times the villains comes seven times the fun. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with fantasy author Cameron Johnston. His latest novel, The Maleficent Seven, is out now from Angry Robot. Cameron and I discuss blacksmithing, the impact of writing groups, and the art and joy of writing villains. And now, 10 minutes of ads! Just kidding. But that would be a kind of villainous thing to do, wouldn't it? Welcome to the Fantasy End, Cameron. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is actually my first ever video interview, so there you go. It's an experience. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully a good one. I haven't been doing them for long. The software I use, Zencaster, just opened this up as a feature not too long ago, so I've been taking advantage of it while it's free. I think they're trying to uh, give people some benefit during pandemic times ah, and then yes. hook them on the mm-hmm. product so that they can uh, start charging afterwards. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think yeah. Uh, I think Zoom were doing the same, weren't they? Oh, we're li- we're limiting you to forty five minutes. Ah, we'll just we'll just waive that for this year. And yep. now look at yep. look at where Zoom is now. Yeah, no, Zoom's doing great. Uh, seems to have totally taken over Skype as being the oh, just give me a Skype call or something. Yeah, yeah, uh, yep. <laughs> absolutely. Let's set up a Zoom. But yeah, so I'm curious because I saw that you are kind of a hobbyist blacksmith. How exactly does someone take that up as a hobby? Well, if you're anything like me, uh, it gets interrupted by COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so I've actually got one of the pieces back here somewhere. So that's a uh, oh, very cool toasting fork. So it's just just one of the one of the starter things we're learning to do. So you've got your uh, you've got your bottle openers, things like that. Just learning how to to move the iron about, but it's. Oddly de-stressing hitting some hot iron with a hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, it sounds very zen, and at least I would picture, I'm kind of a clumsy person, I picture a high chance of injury. I assume there's tons of safety measures in place, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. No synthetics, things like that. Leather boots, steel toe caps if you've got them, that kind of thing, jeans. But yeah, um, I find it very de-stressing. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. I got started. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a place quite near me who do historical European martial arts. So they do like um, they train you in long sword, broadsword. Um, they also do archery, and they, they also have like a, a natural forge. So I was like, "Ooh, I'll be having a go at that," because <laughs> I, I don't know if you're aware of a program called Forged in Fire. I am not, but it sounds awesome. It's competitive bladesmithing. So the first round is they they make knives, then they have to put handles on them, and then they have to recreate weapons from history. Oh, cool. (laughs) So uh, I started watching that, and I was like, yeah, this looks like a lot of fun. It's it's something I've been interested in for a long time, but wasn't aware there were small places that that did courses and things like that. So I just thought one day, oh, I'll uh, I'll look that up. And I was like, yeah, they're they're doing that next to the, uh, the, the sword fighting place I go to. So yeah, so I went along to that, did a few courses, and I'll be going back for more at some point. Very cool. Uh, any chance are you able to 
eventually create your own sword and take that with you to the uh, historical European martial arts, or are they kind of like pre-approved weapons there? Well, it's, it's mostly kind of pre-approved, but I could, I could make myself something one day. But of course, then there's there's different laws about carrying about bladed weapons, so <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> carry it, carry it through a sword through the city center is a bit problematic. Yeah, but, uh, I, I can hmm. imagine. Oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, are there any lessons you've learned from like that blacksmithing that you can take into your writing, or uh, totally separate interests? It's 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 more or less just kind of um, small details that you can add into stories. For example, um, forges were never bright and airy places because you need to see the color of the iron. So okay. because that, that that determines what temperature it is, things like that. So it it just adds all in these little details to things, and I, I love finding it, all these little details and then not using most of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably uh, what most writers encounter when they're doing research. Yeah, but uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I would recommend it if you get the chance. Oh, I, I would absolutely love to. Uh, the one in-person con I've really ever been to is Dragon Con, because that's my local con. Mm -hmm. um, and every year I try to see like a blacksmithing panel to just kind of learn about it because it yeah. seems so interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? <sighs> it, it goes way back. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, for me, it's, it's, a, it's quite a mix of things. Um, Part, part of it is uh, my brother used to have a, a drawer full of like Dragonlance novels, Lone Wolf, Choose Your Own Adventure, Fighting Fantasy, all, all of that kind of thing. Absolutely adored all of that. Um, I also used to love all the old black and white swashbucklers when they, when they came on TV. You know, they're very over the top, jump, jumping about, fighting each other. And, and I've always loved castles and knights and swords and all that kind of thing. So it would be... Uh, I suppose it'd be kind of strange if I, if I didn't like science fiction and fantasy now. <laughs> yeah, that covers a lot of those uh, key interests right there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and because I live in Scotland, we've got lots and lots of historic places just on your doorstep, really. You know, standing stones, stone circles, ruined castles, all that kind of thing. And I would, I would always just run about them with my parents and, you know, into all the little tunnels and all this kind of thing imagination just goes a bit haywire <laughs> i can imagine yeah uh, i have not actually been there yet but apparently there is actually a stone circle about maybe 20 miles from where i live uh, oh, but it okay. is very much <laughs> it's very much like a made in the 1970s kind of stone right, circle okay. by <laughs> some eccentric millionaire who decided he wanted to put it up and everyone just liked it so why not if i had the money i'd probably do the same <laughs> yeah i guess so we can't really blame them but yeah so i am curious because I guess everyone kind of at some point transitions from deciding, hey, like stories are cool. I would like to write stories and then actually thinking of yourself as, you know, a proper dedicated writer. Uh, so yeah. how did that happen for you? I think just kind of organically throughout kind of my childhood and high school, I would, I would dabble writing stories. You know, I would never get past a few pages. Um, then, it, then at some point in my, in my 20s, I was deciding I should really try and write a novel. I think I think it's time to write a novel without any idea what I'm doing, but you know I'll give it a go. <laughs> so my my first book that was that was published is actually my my third completed novel, and uh, there's a whole bunch of novels that never go past twenty thousand words. Because you know it's it's a learning process, but for, but for me I, I just kind of dabbled. I did those two novels, a bunch of short stories, and then I decided to join my local writers group, and that that helped me kind of 
polish up my writing so I had a bit more of an idea of what I was doing. And then uh, after a few years doing short stories, I decided, right, I feel like I'm not going to be wasting my time now if I do a whole novel. Um, so I did that and, those, well, Angry Robot picked it up. So I guess that worked. <laughs> yeah, obviously something worked there. It's, it's it's weird when you're you're starting out and you're like, yeah you're a writer but you you're not a writer writer you don't <laughs> you don't you feel like a bit of a fraud I think it was it was until my third short story got published that you know people actually paid me for that it actually struck that yeah I'm I'm like a published author now I'm not just a writer there's a lot of writers kind of put themselves down they've got the same thing I had where you, you don't feel you're a real writer. Whereas most of us published authors are sitting going, well, you know, if you write, you're a writer, end of. Because, you know, we were you at some point. Yeah, and uh, thankfully I hear that that kind of imposter syndrome always just goes away, right, as soon as you're published. <laughs> it really doesn't. <laughs> every, every book's the same. Yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, so you said you started out kind of uh, writing a bunch of those short stories. Uh, hmm. What kind of takeaways did you get from those that you could apply towards your writing? I think the, the biggest thing I took away from doing short stories was how to self-edit. Because uh, when you're submitting stories to magazines, there's, there's usually a hard word limit of, say, like 5,000 words. And usually I'm sitting there with like 7,500 words of short story. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, how can I cut out all of the fat while keeping the story the same? And there's, there was a lot of fat to cut out. So you can have like a, a couple of pages and you could essentially distill that down to one paragraph. It says exactly the same things in a far more concise manner. You can take out uh, a third of the words in a sentence and it says the same thing in a better way. You know, so it, it taught me a, a lot of that. That's the problem I had with the first two novels. It was all just kind of long and kind of wandering about. Yeah, and you also mentioned your writer's group. So I think that's the Glasgow Science Fiction Writer's Circle. Uh, so how has that impacted your writing career? Oh, absolutely massively. Um, the first part is, is you're part of a writing community. So we, we do a kind of critique sessions and, and then we go down to the pub afterwards. And uh, the person that's getting their story critiqued gets uh, a pint bought for them, a pint of beer or, <laughs> or tea, <laughs> if you prefer, uh, just to soften the blow. <laughs> But um, yeah, the whole community thing—it just it, it keeps you going. You don't feel alone. You, you you've got support. You, you've got people you can ask if you don't know something, or they can take a second look at things. Yeah, so I probably wouldn't be published without them. Um, it's just been massive source of support. And there's a, there's a lot of groups like that that are they're online these days as well. But um, the, the the Glasgow Science Fiction Writer Circle has been going for 35 years now. Wow. So it's. It's probably one of the longest consistently running in the world. So um, uh, there's, there's a lot of expertise there that I, I did take advantage of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would think uh, that's probably one of the most useful things that aspiring writers can do is kind of uh, be serious about the whole critical feedback thing and uh, yeah. think about analyzing story more than just uh, writing whatever idea pops into your head. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, why does this work and how can you fix the problems? Which I, I just, I wouldn't have known previously. I wouldn't have had a clue. I just, I would just know something wasn't right, but not know how to fix it, which is, which is where the, the writer's group came in. Yeah, I would think it also uh, 
there's an element to it's no longer like each thing you write is no longer like your precious story baby and it's more of something <laughs> that you're like all right how can i whip this into shape how can i cut the fat how can yeah. i make this as good as it can possibly be absolutely because it, it, it used to be you'd write something and be like it's it's perfect as it is i i don't want to change a thing <laughs> and uh as you get a bit more professional about about your writing or even just a bit more experienced, you're like, no, <laughs> it is not like that. Unless you're like Anne Rice, who doesn't want an editor to touch your book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that comes with its own pros and cons, I'm yes. sure. But no, I'm like, please, please do rip it to pieces. <laughs> yeah. Help me make it better. Yeah. And so when I was looking into uh, your writer's group online, uh, it seems they follow these Milford critique rules. Yeah. So what exactly are those and how do you guys use them? Well, it's, it's pretty simple, really. Essentially, the person brings the story and everyone's had a chance to read it over the previous weeks. So the author gets to sit there and take notes, but they, they can't say anything unless they're asked a direct question to like maybe clarify something. And then each person doing the critique goes around in a circle, says their piece, and only at the end does the author get a chance to explain or rebut or, you know, because otherwise you're going to spend the entire session just back and forth arguing with each other. So it's, it, it just, just keeps it all nice and concise and stops it devolving into that. <laughs> Starting to see where that pint becomes a useful addition. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so what have you learned from this process of uh, critiquing others and receiving critique yourself? It's much easier to critique someone else's work than your own work. Much <laughs> easier. You go kind of page blind when you're looking at your own stuff, probably because you've been over it like four, five, six times already. And then someone else will come along and look at it and go, oh yeah, um, that, that, that bit there doesn't work. Um, I mean, you, you could have done this and you'd get the same effect and you're like, oh, of course. <laughs> it's, it's just so much easier to see someone else's work. They help pick up things that, um, as, as a writer, you know how it should be in your head, but you've not actually put it on the page or you've put it down wrong. Um, so there was, in my first book, there was there was one entire fight scene where I, I don't know how I've done it, but I replaced the word fist with fish. So they were having like fish fights and um, someone rammed a fish into someone's belly and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I was just like, I didn't see it. And this is me going after it like two or three times because I'm, I, I know what I'm expecting to see. As soon as someone else looks at it, they're going, mm, I, don't, I don't think you meant to have a Monty <laughs> Python scene. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I learned as much critiquing other people's as, as I did from having my own stuff critiqued. I suppose it's just two sides of the coin, really. You learn to anticipate what other people are going to say about your story. Ah, well, Neil will pick that up and flag that one up. I better change that before he has a word. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that seems like it would be so useful. And I mean, if anything, if you can learn to treat your work as if you were critiquing someone else's work, that would probably exactly. be yeah. great. Uh, though, I mean, again, like you go word blind and everything, so there's only so much you can do there. What I will say is it's much easier when you're, you're in a writer's script to do short stories because if it's trash, you're just like, oh, well, <laughs> I'll just pop that aside. It's not a full novel. <laughs> Yeah, easier to throw but, out 5,000 words than it is to throw out, you know, 50,000 or 100,000 words. Which is why I started the group submitting short stories and not a whole novel. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I knew there was, there was going to be things wrong and I wanted to kind of polish my skills up. So I didn't, didn't have to rewrite an entire novel from scratch again. So advice I've heard before, which I feel like probably does have some merit to it, is if you want to be a novelist, you know, you have to practice by writing novels. But like you were saying, where you would get a bunch of ideas 20,000 words through... 
you're practicing mm-hmm. beginnings yeah. at that point and maybe starting to get into the middles. You've never practiced endings uh, and short yeah. stories can give you that. Yeah, they can. Yeah, you, you get the full cycle in a very concise manner. And uh, a lot of the thing people have with novels, like I did with the Peter out, is that they, they don't know how they write a novel. Every author's different. Some people mm-hmm. like to write 30,000 words of outline before they, they even actually start the novel. I can't do it that way. Um, <laughs> if I if I write a full scaffold of a novel and try to keep to it, I just I just lose all will to write the thing. I lose all enjoyment in it. But on the other hand, if I don't have any outline at all, I kind of lose focus and uh, it, it starts to wander, and then it just kind of stops. <laughs> so I I prefer a kind of scaffold approach. So I know the beginning, I know the end, and there's a couple of big points along the way I want to hit. And everything else just kind of metamorphoses around that. So I've always got somewhere I'm heading, but I might not necessarily know how I'm going to get there. Are those um, points typically like plot points for you? Are they character uh, revelations, like all the above? Yeah. Okay. Because usually there's some... there's some big revelations of, of either sort that I just pop into my brain. I'm like, oh, I definitely have to put that in the book. So we'll, uh, we'll work up to that. And then from there, we'll go on to that next point I want to hit. And usually I find it comes together. Yeah, no, it's always interesting to hear people's methods. And, you know, there's always the terms thrown around of like, are you a planner or a pantser or a plotter mm. or an outliner? I feel like everyone's a mix of both. Uh, I don't yeah. really like the distinguishing between the two because, I mean, I doubt anyone can do purely one without any of the other. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there, there's some authors that don't do any plotting at all and somehow manage to write amazing books, and I just don't know how they do it. <laughs> yeah, although, I don't know. I feel like there's also a lot of authors who don't do any plotting at all, and it kind of shows. <laughs> <laughs> um, well. But yeah, so you did talk about this a little bit earlier, um, but uh, I imagine you've done quite a bit of research in different areas. So what's been your favorite research rabbit hole to fall down and what kind of stuff did you take away from that? I think probably one of my, my favorite rabbit holes was uh, I was researching ancient medicine. Um, I, I did a couple of kind of um, short courses at university and things like that. There's so many interesting things. Um, like uh, in ancient Greece, there was temples of Asclepius. People would uh, would come in and uh, they would go to sleep in uh, in a room. And the, the floor was covered in snakes, and they would get they would get dogs to lick the wounds. Yeah, because they they were hol- holy animals, sacred animals, basically. And I was like, oh right, that sounds so weird to me to think of that. But I mean, this is this is trying to get into the kind of fantasy mindset where the real world is just as strange as fantasy. <laughs> One of the best ones, though. And the traitor god, there's uh, there's a trade in magical blood and bones, and I took that from uh, the 12th to 19th century in Western Europe, where people would grind up Egyptian mummies and uh, apply it to wounds. And I was just like, oh, that's that's so disgusting. Whoever thought that was a great idea? But what it turns out is the uh, the Persians used to use um, medical bitumen to seal wounds, and uh, it's called mamia. And uh, some scholars confuse that with mummies. <laughs> so, so these no. people were just like, "Oh, mummies! Let's yeah, so let's." And you know, they were they were they had bitumen in them as well. So they would grind up these mummies with like flesh and bones and everything as well. And I can just imagine some ancient Persian doctor going, "No, <laughs> you've <have> misunderstood." <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it makes you kind of wonder, you know, hundred. 
thousand years from now, what kind of things are people going to uh, mistakenly think that we were doing and try to replicate? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's things like that I just find absolutely astounding and fascinating. Stay tuned for more after the break. Eyes Shut Studios presents Fenrir. So, you want to hear a story, do you? The name's Fenrir, and this is my Amir. Rowan, a breathtaking audio journey set in a mythical land. Regal! No! God, it's full! With unforgettable creatures. Harp walkers. They're enormous! And danger around every corner. Don't forget your history, boy! You are a Yomir! No, no, no! Rowan. Rowan. So it is true. Hirote! This is what we get for disturbing the balance. It is the light that blinds us. Rowan, I think we're gonna need it. To the darkest shadows, it creates. <laughs> Thank you, Fenrir. We were looking to make our exit. Fenrir, on all platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addicts, and more. New episodes every 15th of the month. Well, okay, so you're here to discuss your latest book, The Maleficent 7. So, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into that. Do you have a pitch for us? Oh, here, I've got it right here. It's, uh, oh, perfect. First copy of the press, as far as I'm aware. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's um, seven legendary evils come together to defend an innocent town against an army of bloodthirsty fanatics. So um, 40 years ago, the, the dread demonologist Black Haran abandoned her own bloodthirsty army on the eve of conquest. But to defeat this new foe, she needs to reunite her old captains. You've got a vampire, a necromancer, an orc chieftain, a war god, a twisted alchemist and a pirate queen. So that, that's the pitch. And it kind of says it all in the title, The Maleficent Seven. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you were just showing us the cover too. It shows it in that as well, where you've got like... Well, I mean, you've got these seven Maleficent villain type characters, uh, yeah, which I love. Uh, yeah. This is this is I feel like one of the few times where a short pitch like that for a book is what immediately made me pick it up. Because uh, normally I'm the kind of trust recommendations from friends and go in blind, uh, but that was such a fun sounding pitch. Yeah, it, it was it was so much fun to write. <laughs> I, hope, I hope it comes across in the book. It, it seems to have from the early reviews, but I certainly had a lot of fun writing it which is always a good yeah. sign, I think. I, I would hope. I mean, what's the point of being a writer if you can't have any fun with your writing? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm not, we're, not, we're not doing it for the money, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I feel like most of the writers that are doing it for the money, you can mostly count on one hand, so yeah. there's not that many of them out there. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, the title kind of definitely raises this question, but how much inspiration did you take from the Magnificent Seven movies? Well... I'm always someone that watched, you know, like Lord of the Rings and thought, I'd love to see like a, a movie about Sauron. Yeah, that, that'd be much more interesting, I think. <laughs> and I've, I've always loved villains. 
I find them like, fascinating characters. Um, quite often, far more interesting than the the heroic protagonist. You know, the, the farm boy with a magic sword fighting the Dark Lord. I'm like, no, I want to find out more about the Dark Lord. Thanks. He's much more interesting. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I was originally writing a, a story about uh, about these villains. I was I was kind of basing it off of the Seven Samurai, more than Magnificent Seven, but in a world without samurai, you, you can't really riff off that. So I was like, okay, so let's see, seven evil villains. Let's try and think of words. And it was actually at a, um, a writers' convention um, down in England. And we were sitting in the bar, and I was telling people about the, the, the story I'm writing, and uh, yeah, just came up with the Maleficent Seven there. And I was just like, well, that tells you exactly what the book's about. So yeah, I feel they expected the the publisher to change it because you know not not a lot of titles stay the same through submission to publication. But no, the Angry Robot loved the title, so they they wanted to keep that. Yeah, I was going to say, I was fully expecting you to say that it came about through a conversation with Angry Robot, because I do not know many writers who got to totally pick the title on their own. No, I was, as I said, I was expecting them to change it, but nope. <laughs> hey, I mean, that's the sign that you've got a, a catchy title right there. I think so. But yeah, so I felt like, to me, reading the book, that is kind of structured a little bit like an action movie, where you've got the first half is all kind of, you know, like, oh, you're getting the gang back together, and you're going, like, mm-hmm. from each of the old crew members and trying to recruit them. And then the end is like the big action sequence. It almost feels like it was meant for a movie or for, I don't know, these days, maybe like an HBO Max <laughs> well, limited series. I'm not going to say no, am I? <laughs> That's that is some of the inspiration I, I did take from like, you know, the Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. That, that kind of movie feel to it, getting the old gang back together sort of thing. Were you consciously trying to like make the writing cinematic at times, or was that just kind of how your writing style is at this point? Yeah, I, I think I think it, it just came about the, the the feeling of the book. Yeah, Did that that just just kind of happened. I didn't set out to make it like a you know like an eighties action movie kind of feel. Yeah, although now I really want to see this as an eighties action movie because that would be <laughs> so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I'm not sure if you know an author, uh, Rob J Hayes. Uh, yes, yeah, I'm familiar. Yeah, um, he's given me one of the blurbs for the back of the book, and yeah, I, I just love it so much. Um, it's like Kings of the World smooshed together with Suicide Squad into glorious, gory, sweary melee. Yeah, no, that's that's a blurb right yeah. there. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, that should go on the cover. <laughs> yeah. But okay, yeah, so this, uh, I think your Age of Tyranny books you wrote previously were told mostly from a single point of view, uh, and this is the complete opposite, where uh, the book regularly hops around between heads (laughs) within a scene. Uh, So what kind of advantages or challenges did this new approach have for you? Well, with the the Traitor God, because it's mostly from that single point of view, there's a lot of thing I I couldn't show the reader, because the main character, Edwin Walker, is not there to see it. That was a bit annoying in places because I had to kind of write around that stuff going on in the background. Whereas with this, I was like, right, okay, so we've got seven main point of view characters and, and several minor ones, so I, I can show every corner of this conflict from multiple different places. Of course, the problem with that is I, I wanted to write every point of view with a, a slightly different voice, a slightly different tone and slightly different language, and then I had to try and keep that all consistent through the entire book. Oh, it was it's a it was a different <laughs> challenge, <laughs> but um, it's it's good to stretch yourself as a writer and try new things. 
fortunately, it seems to have worked. Yeah, and I feel like that's probably part of the appeal for uh, standalone free. Well, okay, I guess I should ask: Is this a standalone, or is this going to be a series? Well, it's it's written as a standalone. Gotcha. Well, then I was going to say it's part of the appeal. I imagine of that is you get to try something totally different, and you're only on the hook for one book. It's not some yeah. uh, mm-hmm. epic twelve book series or something. Yeah, I've always I've always loved the big long series. You know, like um, like Malazan, for example. But I don't like cliffhangers in books. And then you have to wait a year, year and a half, two years or whatever for, for the next book to continue the story, at which point I've probably forgotten half of that first book. I, I love a series that has self-contained arcs within a greater story. So if, if you can give me a standalone book that, you know, you can expand it into like a trilogy, you could essentially pick up book two, book three, and you won't be completely lost, then I prefer that personally. Yeah, I know uh, I'm very much not the kind of reader that would go back and reread books just to prepare for mm-hmm. the next installment in a series. Yeah. Uh, so I definitely appreciate that as well. <laughs> I learned that lesson from the, the Wheel of Time more than Malazan, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... One day, one day I'll continue. I will probably have to read an online summary somewhere because I made it three <laughs> books into Wheel of Time and that was like a year and a half ago, so... Yeah, that, that's why I consciously try and, and, and give people um, a satisfying end to a book. Even if it's going to be in a series, I would like to have you know some sort of satisfying end to it. Well, I guess before we move to on from the head hopping, I'm curious, how do you manage that kind of on the micro level, just within a scene? How do you like, oh, like this person runs by and all of a sudden we're in the other character's perspective? Well, you, you can have just a little break in the text, like a, a single blank line um, that indicates you're, you're starting with a new character. Or... As long as you start out saying what, what character it is, people will follow along. It's when you, you switch point of views, but you don't tell the reader that it's actually someone else. And you're like, well, this, this doesn't sound like that person. <laughs> and it takes a couple of lines. Oh, no, it's not. And you get that little bit of cognitive um, dissonance that I don't tend to like. So I wanted to try and make it clear which character you're following at any given time. And part of that is what I was saying earlier with the, the tone and the voice. So you, you'll have some characters that swear a lot. You'll have some characters that talk kind of cultured. And you'll, you'll have other ones with a bit of an accent. All of that kind of melds in to help the reader determine which character they're following anytime, even if they put the book down and come back to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and each of the villainous characters, I feel like, are so kind of like, I don't know if flamboyant's the word I'm looking for, but they're like so extra in what they are. So that definitely helps, I yeah. feel like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't really holding back when I was writing. It was it was almost gleeful. <laughs> that, that's, that's what I would say about writing those characters. Yeah. Um, well, so how do you walk the line between showing that those characters are uh, definitely like the villainous baddies that they are while still making them? I guess I wouldn't say all of them are necessarily meant to be sympathetic, but how do you kind of keep readers invested in like, quote unquote, the bad guys? I've, I've always said that you don't have to have likable characters. They just have to be interesting. Okay. And, and that, that's my main thing. If you're interested in a character, they can be absolutely horrible people. But if they're interesting, you'll keep reading about them. <laughs> and uh, I think we're, we're, we're long past the old, you know, mustachioed villains that are evil for evil's sake. Everyone has reasons to do something. And I, I think if you explain a villainous character's point of view, you might not agree with it, but you'll see where they're coming from. And I think that goes a long way to 
not not liking but understanding them and um yeah so they're, they're not just needlessly evil right and i know i think just in my time reading fantasy i feel like i've graduated from uh encountering a lot of from older books the villains have villainous motivations versus uh villainous characters who like they just have regular normal motivations but they're willing to do a lot different things than a more heroic character might do yeah it's it's not such a huge step from one character doing something and uh, or not doing something another one whose lines just a, a little bit shifted in one direction or the other especially when it comes to you know like protecting friends and family and that kind of thing you you might not protect a stranger but I think most people would uh, would defend their friends and family. Yeah. And possibly go too far. But uh, <laughs> the more villainous the character, the further they'll go. That kind of thing. Yeah, and that uh, makes for definitely a lot of interesting stories for sure. Yeah, it's like you, you've, you've, you've got the heroic farm boy and, you know, the old epic fantasies whose parents inevitably get killed by the Dark Lord or something. And then he goes off to save the world. Whereas your villainous character their family's being killed yeah they're not going out to save the world they're going out to wreak bloody revenge on who did it so it's, it's the same event from two different perspectives so that that's how i tried to approach this book and yeah so how i mean since all of your main characters are pretty much these different shades of villain how do you think your ability moving forward now to write these effective villainous characters has uh evolved throughout the writing of this book i, th I think it's come quite far actually I learned a lot about getting into the character's head and then getting that onto the page into the reader's head, making it understandable and even sympathetic. And what I've also found is that humour goes a long way. Because, you know, like, evil characters don't have to be absolutely humorless evil people. You know? <laughs> Some of their jokes might be at the expense of other people, but, you know, they still have a sense of humour. Most of them still love and have desires and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, especially writing seven villainous characters, everyone a little bit different. I, th I think it's kind of expanded my repertoire a bit. So yeah, it's, I think that's going to stand me in good stead. Yeah, well, uh, looking forward to seeing the future villains then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I'm also curious because uh, I appreciate kind of uh, sidesteps away from what's expected in world building. And I feel like there was a lot in the Maleficent 7 that was like that. Um, so what's your favorite uh, tweak on the sort of conventional fantasy elements, the one that you're most proud of? Um, I know like I like there was colors changed on the skin of orcs or like uh, the vampire twist was slightly different than what I've seen before. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you thought about that. Yeah, I, I have to say I really enjoyed writing um, the vampire character. Because when I grew up, vampires were horrible. They weren't like right. love interests, you know, unless they wanted to be the love interest. I kind of feel like a, a little bit of vampire redemption going on here. You've got a, a horrible, um, inhuman, but also weirdly human character at the same time. So yeah, I'm. Uh, I feel like I'm. I'm trying to bring vampires back here to how I think they should be. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Lorimer the Vampire was definitely, I think, my favorite of the seven. So I really mm. enjoyed his parts. Yeah, yeah. I very much enjoyed writing him as well. And um, I feel like the kind of changing his his body aspect, because he can, you know, he can change his flesh and his bones. He can grow spikes and claws and whatever else he wants to do. I feel like his, um, his attitude to other people's bodies is uh, a little bit twisted. And there's one one particular scene that oh, 
I, I cringe striking it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, I mean, that's an interesting question right there. I'm curious, uh, how do you handle that as a writer? If you get to a scene where you're like, okay, well, this fits, but like it's so painful or like you just cringe writing it, how do you approach that? I think you just have to be honest with yourself. If, uh, if it evokes a, re- a reaction in you when you're writing it, it's probably going to evoke a reaction in the reader as well. What you need to decide is, uh, is it gratuitous? Does it go too far? Does it not go far enough? And then, of course, uh, this is one of the benefits of being a, with a traditional publisher because it goes off to the editor after that. <laughs> and then you, you might get the, the red line or the in word, you get the balloon text and the track changes saying, no, 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 too far. <laughs> <laughs> of course, uh, in, in that scene I was mentioning earlier with Lorimer, I just got, oh, my God. And they just left it in there. So I'm like, yeah, that's what I wanted. So it's um, this is one of the things working with the editors. You've got that kind of second pair of eyes on it. Yeah, and it's nice to see that uh, editors can have that kind of readerly emotional response as well, rather than just breaking out the red pen and uh, digging into your work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with uh, The Traitor God, I had uh, an entire chapter that got dropped from the book. It was this really characterful, really well-written um, tavern scene where um, Edwin Walker goes in and, and manages to find out some information about a murder. And the editor just put like a big red X through it and saying, you can replace this entire chapter with one paragraph at this other part of the story where it would make total sense. And I'm just sitting going, my immediate response is, no, it's a really good chapter. I want to keep it in. But then I have to try and justify keeping it into myself. And then I'm looking at this one paragraph I could put elsewhere and I'm just like, I can't justify it. Yeah. So annoying. But especially it's so annoying when the editors are right. <laughs> Funny how that works, right? I imagine that happens uh, quite a bit. I think it does, yes. Lots of people love their editors for that very reason. Well, okay, so very serious literary question. What character was the most fun for you to write out of all of these? I think it, I think it was Tiernach. He's the, the war god on the cover of a dead people. It's just his... His sense of humor, um, he just he, he's not taking any shit and he, he's happy to screw people over. But at the same time, he's he's a broken god as people are all dead and, and he's still lingering on, somehow trying to find himself through all of this. He was also the most, most fun, but also the most challenging because I, I had to really fight hard with myself not to make him too likable. <laughs> Yeah, because I liked the character so much, I was like, oh, yes, um, this will make him really, really well liked, blah, blah, blah. Oh, wait, but he did commit those genocides. You know, <laughs> you, you, yeah. don't want to, you don't want to go too far one way or the other. Right, yeah. And I mean, I think it's interesting with those blurred lines too, because you can probably have a reader who's like, no, Tiernik is just a monster, irredeemable in every way. And other people who are yeah. like, yeah, but he's really likable as well. Yeah. I mean, this is this is the the joy of writing seven villainous characters. I, I think there's something for everyone there. Some people are going to love one character and hate another, and other people are going to make com- complete reverse. So I think I think it's going to be interesting to see which one people like the most. Yeah. Do you have any predictions? I haven't the faintest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, yeah. I'm quite fo- I'm quite fond of the Twisted Alchemist, but um, I, I think he's probably the most monstrous of them all. Yeah, I, I do like how uh, as you're slowly gathering all of the villains together, everyone is like, wait, we're getting this guy too? Oh no, he's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one in a group, isn't there? Yep. 
Yeah. Oh no, Jeff's coming. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, I guess looking forward, are there any future projects that you can talk about? I've got I've got a few in the works. Um, I've got several ideas for a, a Bronze Age um, Celtic-inspired fantasy. Oh, cool. Okay. So um, there's you know like there's there's no plate armor, there's no iron, there's no steel. Very very much kind of based on Scottish mythology and and that kind of thing. So I'm I'm quite quite excited to be writing that at the moment. Yep. Thinking of uh, doing standalones again or going back to a series. Um, it could go either way, to be honest. Uh, I could write this as a standalone, but what what I might do is in a kind of um, expanded universe of what I was talking earlier with um, linked standalone books, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, no, that would be interesting. Uh, I definitely enjoy that kind of style, like we were saying. Mm-hmm. It, it, it very much works for me. Um, I, I find it very satisfying to to have a, a proper ending, and then, and then you can have another book with another proper ending. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> win-win for me. <laughs> At closure for uh, you as a writer and for readers as well. Absolutely. Well, also, are there just any books that you've read lately that you can recommend? Oh, uh, probably too many, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> um, I, I've just started reading um, The Coward by Stephen Aryan. It's in the past. There was uh, there was an ice lich and a party of adventurers went out, went out to slay it. And uh, only this one guy came back. So he's been lauded as a hero, but he's he's not exactly the hero in the tales that he told. So uh, yeah, I find that very interesting. Um, I've, I've just finished the second in the Bone Ships trilogy by R.J. Barker, which is just absolutely fantastic. It's a um, it's a nautical fantasy, but they're uh, they're all sailing about in ships made out of dragon bones. So uh, it's just a wonderful world. I love it very much. I've also just recently finished Iron Prince by Bryce O'Connor. Um, I, I don't know if you, you read much progression fantasy. It's a, okay. It reads a little bit like a, a lit RPG, but, but it's not. But you do have that power progression going on where you've got a character struggling to develop their powers and get stronger. And um, I'm, I'm a sucker for books like that, I have to say. Yeah, no, I, I am definitely a sucker as well. I know uh, the main series I'm familiar with like that is Will White's Cradle, oh, um, yeah, which definitely yeah. definitely scratches that itch. I'm up to date on that one as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the other in the kind of same vein, I would say, is uh, the Mage Errant series. Okay. I think that's, who's that, John Bierce? Yeah. If you if you like Cradle, yeah, Mage Errant works for me as well. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about it, um, and it is on the good old TVR, but it's hard to uh, get to all those books. <laughs> that, that's the problem, isn't it? Is, uh, that mountain just keeps getting higher. People just keep writing good books. Yeah, uh, whenever I see a friend who's not like as much into books or anything, I'm like, oh, do you ever worry that you're just going to run out of books to read? And I just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other thing with being a traditional traditional author is that at some point publishers start sending you books it's like do you want do you want a free book you know you, you can read it and review yeah. it at some point <laughs> okay free books okay but uh yeah and, and then they, they start arriving and start start building up and i've had to go into kindle because i've kind of ran out of space so i'm kind of like <laughs> oh no more more books what, what will i do <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. Space for physical books is definitely a hard one. I'm mostly uh, a Kindle reader myself, and then I get the physical books that I want to kind of show off on my mm-hmm. shelves. Yeah, that, that's the way I'm going as well. Because I, I feel bad about getting rid of books. 
it, it feels like a personal insult if I have to get rid of a book, you know? So um, that's why I'm getting a lot on Kindle these days. <laughs> I'm just I'm just loath to charity shop them. Yeah, and it's amazing. Uh, Kindle really gets you with, uh, you're like, oh, I'm saving money because it's, you know, it's an ebook. It's a couple bucks cheaper, but when mm-hmm. you buy a lot more of them, <laughs> it definitely cancels out. Yep. Yeah, and uh, if you're anything like me, you've you've got a couple of folders on your Kindle, and so you, you've got a to be read pile, and you're like, "Ooh, that's a high number." Yeah, I uh, regrettably only recently discovered that folders on Kindles were a thing. Um, so <laughs> very late to that game. <laughs> uh, and then uh, way I kind of like to close out these interviews, Cameron is just asking, "What's one thing you're excited about right now?" Do you know? I, I'm really looking forward to Free Guy. The, the new Ryan Reynolds film that's coming out. I've been waiting okay, for that. I don't that think for, I've heard about this. He's, a, he's basically um, an NPC in an MMO. Oh, okay. I have seen trailers for that. That looks good. Yeah. So I've, I've been waiting for that for, it must be a year and a half now. <laughs> and uh, I've been looking forward to Loki as well. Uh, I just think he's one of the, the best Marvel characters. Uh, again, a villainous character. There you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You definitely have a type there. <laughs> yeah. But as, um, there's, yeah, there's, there's not a tremendous amount I'm, I'm looking forward to at the moment. It's just these, these odd little things I've been waiting for until things get back on an even keel and I can go back out and do my kind of uh, my sword fighting, blacksmithing, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I. I think that those hobbies sound incredible and I hope that you get to get back to them soon. But yeah, for now, I guess we'll take those uh, little things while we can. Yeah. And we were playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons as well. We used to we used to go off to a pub and play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but, you know, we've had to kind of try and move that online. But I don't, don't think it works as well as in person. Um, there's a lot more riffing off each other. That's the only way I've played it is, yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing to try to pick up during COVID times. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So uh, there's actually um, a few websites as well. We've been trying to play online board games on. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a bit clunkier than in person, but it, it does work. So we've, uh, we've, we've been managing to play some D&D, played some board games, whatnot online. Okay. Yeah. No. That's that's very cool. I know. Uh, I think I've heard like you can play Settlers of Catan in Excel, but I doubt that's the kind of thing that you're doing. <laughs> no. There's, uh, there's there's a couple of websites um, like Tabletopia and things like that where they have like okay. uh, an on-screen table and all the cards are laid out on it and the boards are oh, on it. Oh, interesting. And you use your your cursor to move the tokens and flip the cards and things like that. So it work, works pretty well. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to look into that. Well, I think that's pretty much a wrap, Cameron. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been wonderful. That's great. Thanks for having me. You can find Cameron Johnston on Twitter as Cam Johnston or at his website, CameronJohnston.net. If you like fun spins on fantasy tropes mixed with the nonstop actiony fun of the Wild West, look no further than the Maleficent 7. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon. You'll get video versions of these interviews, ad-free audio, and a special patron-only bonus episode. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.